0: Consider with me a tale of two Christmas gifts. Gift number one, it's Christmas morning and all the families together, including your very rich and very generous Uncle Mortimer. You haven't seen him in a few years, but you're excited that he's there. After you finish opening up all of the presents, you head outside to go to church because it's Christmas. Of course, you would go to church on Christmas. And to head out into the driveway, like a Christmas car commercial, you see a brand new vehicle, the one you've always wanted in your driveway with a big red bow on top, 50-pound red bow on top. And you're very rich, very generous. Uncle Mortimer looks at you and he smiles and he says, That's for you. He says, I know it's a lot of money, but it's yours if you want it. It's paid in full. I made an arrangement with the dealer, and the transaction won't be finalized until you drive it out of the driveway. Here's the keys. All you have to do is start the vehicle, back it up out of the driveway, and it is paid in full your vehicle. Gift number one. That's an incredible gift, right? A a pricey vehicle for free if you decide to accept it. Gift number one. Gift number two. It's Christmas morning, and you suddenly wake up. You don't know where you are. You look around a little bit, and you listen, kind of acclimate. You hear the beeping, and you know you're in a hospital bed. There's wires and IVs connected to your body. And your first thought is, it's Christmas morning. How am I going to get to church? Okay, just kidding. Enough with this Christmas Sunday jokes. Your first thought is, how did I get here? You rack your, be- your brain to try to remember what happened, and all of a sudden, it's fuzzy, but it comes back to you. Your last memory was Christmas Eve. You were doing some last-minute shopping, and you just realized, oh, I've got to do some last-minute shopping. You're doing some last minute shopping Christmas Eve, and you remember complaining to yourself how busy and chaotic and crazy it seemed to be. Everybody's in a rush, everybody's in a hurry. You kind of realized I'm part of the problem, and you're walking out to your car with your presents, last bit of presents to buy before Christmas tomorrow morning, and you're hit by a vehicle and you go black. was your last memory? begin to put the pieces together, and a doctor comes in. The doctor says, you should be dead. In fact, I pronounced you dead earlier this morning, but now your heart is beating. The hospital staff pumped blood into your veins when you had bled out from the accident think about that for a second. That is also an incredible gift. Somebody's blood to save your life, given for you, put into your body when you had no ability to ask for it, to receive it, to reject it, to resist it. It's just infused in you. It's yours. Both gifts were freely given. Both gifts were undeserved. One gift is presented to you with a decision to accept it or reject it. The other gift is a new quality that's infused in you. Here's the question I want you to think about for a moment. Which of those gifts best describe the gift of salvation? Which of those gifts is salvation a gift that we accept or deny, like the vehicle from Uncle Mortimer? Or is salvation something that is worked in us by God's sovereign grace, like the blood that you received at the hospital? During this Christmas season, we've been walking through kind of a theology of the atonement, We began by examining our need for the death of Jesus in our place. We are completely corrupted by sin. And then we looked at the Father's plan for the atonement. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father made a plan to save His people. Last week, we looked at the the price that God the Son paid so that you could be ransomed. And last week, we said that when God makes a plan and pays the price, He guarantees the results. But how does that work? What if somebody rejects the gift that God planned for them and that the Son purchased for them? Here's the big idea I want us to cover this morning from our text in John chapter 6. God can guarantee the results of our salvation because He overcomes all our resistance by His sovereign grace. Let me tell it to you again. God can guarantee the results of our salvation because He overcomes all our resistance by His sovereign grace. And that... Brother, sister, friend, is gloriously good news. I'll show you why in our text, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn there now, John 6, 35. This is a portion of Jesus' teaching that's sometimes called the bread of life discourse. You'll see why in just a moment. And in this text, we see the truth that God overcomes our resistance to Him. So, in our text, I want to show you with God's help, I want to ask and answer four questions about God's overcoming grace. Let's read the passage one more time, and then we'll walk through those questions together. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day." Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Four questions about God's overcoming grace from this passage. Question number one, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? to be saved. This was, of course, the question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. You might remember the story. Paul and Silas enter into the city of Philippi, and they cast a demon out of a slave girl. And because of that, her owners are frustrated. She was a fortune teller of sorts, and she's no longer able to do the the work that she had done for them before. And so they get them arrested, beaten, thrown into prison. Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail are singing songs, even as they're shackled. And then there's an earthquake. And in some sort of a miraculous event, all of their chains are loosed. All of the jail doors are opened. And the Philippian jailer, whose job it was, you know, one job, don't let anybody out. And if you do, you die. Grabs his sword and is about ready to take his own life, thinking that the prisoners have escaped. And Paul and Silas cry out, do not harm yourself, we're all still here. And the Philippian jailer asks that question, what must I do to be saved? Here's the answer that Paul and Silas gave, Acts 16, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So what's the answer to that question? What must we do to be saved? Here's the answer. Believe. Believe. Now now that's not merely something that, that Paul made up. This is repeatedly what Jesus taught about salvation. We see it at least twice in the passage we just read. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, what does it say, believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, do you want to be satisfied? I wonder if there's anyone in this room this morning feeling dissatisfied with life. Jesus says, do you want real satisfaction? The kind of satisfaction that I promise you won't come if your team wins the big game or if you get the big present or if you get the big promotion, that might satisfy you a little bit for a little time, but if you want ultimate, lasting, genuine, true satisfaction, Jesus says, come to me, believe in me. Or verse 40, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Do you see it? Jesus says, you want eternal life? Look at me, believe in me. Same answer that Paul and Silas gave to the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on Jesus. So what does it mean to believe? Well, if you ever watched the Thanksgiving Day Parade, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, you've likely seen or heard about their Believe Meter, which has supposedly been measuring belief in Santa Claus since 1858. There are four markers on the meter. Imagine, wish, dream, and believe. Now, I think that's what people think about Christian belief those that don't know Jesus. Christian belief is, it's, you know, it's kind of this fun game you can play if you want to. It's wishful thinking, it's imagination, it's hoping, it's blind faith, man, I hope that that's true, that this is real. That's not Christian belief. Let me say to you, dear friend, if that's the type of belief you have in Jesus, you don't yet believe in Jesus. Christian belief is better, perhaps a better translation of that term is the word trust. Christian belief is is relying on someone or something. Trusting and, and relying on Jesus always requires us to stop trusting or relying in something else. Think about that for a second. If you're really going to trust in Jesus, put your weight on Jesus, you're going to have to stop trusting in something else. Every single person in this room is trusting in someone or something for ultimate peace, happiness, joy, satisfaction. Jesus says, stop trusting in that, start trusting in me. The Bible often uses the terms repentance and faith to describe what's happening in that moment. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus begins his ministry by saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Or in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, and he's preaching to the people in Athens, and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, repent, turn away, stop trusting in these other things. And the text says that many or some men joined him and believed. Now, Paul doesn't say, wait a second, I told you guys to repent and you believed. You guys got it wrong. He doesn't do that. Why? Because they're two sides of the same coin. If I tell you to repent, I'm telling you to believe. If I tell you to believe, I'm telling you to repent. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. So we believe with a repentant belief. And we repent with a believing repentance. We turn and trust. So in this way, repentance and faith are kind of like ice skating on a frozen pond. Don't recommend it around here. But for those of you that grew up in Michigan or the Minnesota folks... There's some frozen ponds you can skate on. You go out there and you leave where you're standing. You turn away from the solid ground and not merely thinking, I hope that'll hold me, but actually putting your weight on the ice, turning and trusting. So let me ask again what must we do to be saved? You must repent and believe. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. I I think this is particularly important to remember, especially if you've been with us the past few weeks as we've really looked at the bigness of God in our salvation. Here's what the Bible never says in answer to this question. If you were to ask, what do I need to do to be saved? The Bible never says, make sure you're elect. It doesn't say that. It says, repent and believe repent and believe, turn and trust. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just repeat one of my favorite quotes about this issue that I think is helpful. You take the first step, God will take the second step, and by the time you get to the third step, you will know that it was God who took the first step. In other words, there are some in this room right now, you think, I just gotta take that step, and I'd say, do it! And then I'll tell you once you take it, did you know that it was God that drew you here today? Why do you think you're here? God drew you here. That's question number one. What must I do to be saved? It seems pretty simple, and it is. It's pretty straightforward. But it leads to a second question. How do we respond? How do we respond? Not how should we respond, how are we supposed to respond, but how do we respond? respond. I think here it's helpful to understand the context of John chapter 6. The chapter begins with a famous story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men. You remember the story? Some guys got a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish, and Jesus miraculously multiplies it so that it's enough to feed Thousands upon thousands of people. The, the Gospels all say 5,000 men. There's probably women there. There's probably children there. We could be talking about 25, 30,000 people fed with a Happy Meal. That's what Jesus did. It's an incredible miracle. And then the Bible tells us in John 6, something the other gospel writers don't record, that after Jesus does the miracle, this massive crowd of people, they, they got this great idea. This guy's got incredible power. We should make him our king. Let's make him king. We'll use him to overthrow Rome. And the text says that they were ready to make Jesus king by force. Can you imagine that? You see a guy turn some fish and bread into enough food for thousands, and your gut response is, I'm going to force him to be my king. Okay? That's what they did. Now, Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing what they were thinking, Jesus withdrew. And the text tells us that the disciples get in a boat, they cross to the other side of the sea, Jesus walks over there because He's Jesus. He walks on water, crosses to the other side. The next morning, the crowd wakes up. Jesus is gone. And so, they get in boats, and they go to the other side. Can you just imagine life as Jesus or with His disciples? I mean, the crowd's following you everywhere, always wanting something. And Jesus, in an incredible moment of perception, says to this crowd that comes to Him the next morning, He basically says this, you guys didn't come here because you were interested in me. You came here because you want breakfast. Essentially, that's what he says to them. That's the context of this story. Look at verse 26. John, 20, John 6, 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Kind of similar to the question that we started with, what must I do to be saved? To which Jesus replies, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Isn't that interesting? If you come to Jesus and say, what work do you want me to do? The first work Jesus says is believe. Now, just think about what's happening. He's performed this incredible miracle. He's fed thousands upon thousands of people with a little bit of food. Now he's challenging them to believe. You would think their response would be, great, great, sign me up. I believe. I mean, man, that food was good. You got a basket left over over here. Is that how they responded? Look at verse 30. So they said to them, to him, "Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat." Now, stop and think about what they're saying. Jesus says, believe in me, and they say, what are you going to do to help me believe in you? What? What are you talking about? What am I going to They refuse to believe. Then they say, well, Jesus, you gave us bread and fish, but Moses, in the wilderness, Moses fed the whole nation of Israel for forty years with bread from heaven, Jesus. You think that miracle's really good, do you? Well, come on, you can do better than that. Do something better. Do a real sign, Jesus. To which Jesus responds, verse thirty-two: "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven." But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is not some manna floating down from the sky. It's He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me, yet you do not believe." Now, I think this illustrates something incredibly important about humanity. You can see Jesus. You can taste His miracles. You can hear His voice with your physical ears. You can speak to Him and still not believe. Think about that. These people saw, tasted, heard, watched, and they still refused to believe. Now, this is the point where the inner attorney, each of us has an inner attorney inside of us. It's always defending ourselves. Your inner attorney is saying, yeah, well, that's what those guys did, but I'm I'm not like that. I'm one of the good ones. Listen to the Word of God. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. Can I just challenge you? I think that the way the people responded in this story is not how some people sometimes respond, it's how all people all the time respond except when the Spirit moves in a powerful way. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to hear that again. This is not the way some people sometimes respond. It's how all people all the time respond. We see, we hear, we taste, and we reject. That is the human heart. That's you, dear friend, apart from Jesus. How do we respond? We reject. This is what we do. Now that's a pretty bleak picture if the story ends there. And I think it should lead us to a third question. If you're paying attention, you should be asking this question, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Now, if you remember your Bibles, you know this, of course, is the question that the disciples asked in Matthew chapter 19. You remember this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he's ready to follow Jesus. And Jesus has kept the commandments. Oh, yeah, I've been keeping them all my life since I was a boy. And Jesus says, this is one thing that you lack. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And then Jesus says, it is easier. Let me just read it to you. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Camel, big. Needle, small. Got it? It's easier to do that than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, Who then can be saved? Who can be saved? If to be saved you must repent and believe, and if every single one of us rejects, who can be saved? Jesus' answer to the disciples is the right answer for this question in this moment. Here it is. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, think about it with me. Just put your thinking cap on for a second. Christian, listen to me. You're a sinner. Apart from Christ... You're a sinner. If you're a believer in this room, think back to before you trusted in Jesus. You're a sinner and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Which means not only do you reject the ways of God, you can't accept it if you want to. Dead people don't accept anything. You reject and resist. And if that is where you stay, you are forever, eternally, without hope. Unless God overcomes your resistance to the gospel. Unless God steps in and says, you may reject me, but I'm going to overcome your resistance. I'm going to submit to you that's exactly what He does. And that's exactly what He did when you put your faith in Jesus. Look at John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is not saying in verse 37 that everybody receives Christ right away. He's not saying we don't occasionally resist and reject God. He is saying that if God has given you to the Son, then God will overcome your resistance. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, these two verses are two sides of the same coin. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them, and everybody who the Father draws will come to Jesus. That is glorious good news. This doctrine is sometimes called irresistible grace. I don't particularly like the name because it implies that you, you, you can't resist God. You do resist God. I think a better term is effectual grace or overcoming grace. This idea that you might resist, you might stiff-arm God for 75 years, but He will overcome your resistance if you belong to Him. So how does He do it? Think back to the first question, what must we do to be saved? What's the two things? What do we do? Repent and Believe. Where do repentance and belief come from? Philippians 1, verse 29. For it has been granted, given. Here's a gift. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Do you notice what Paul is saying to the Philippian church? God gave you the ability to believe. Or Acts chapter 11. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God. This is after the salvation of Cornelius and his household, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has what? Granted repentance that leads to life. God gives the ability to believe, and God gives the ability to repent. So think back to our tale of two gifts that we began with this morning. Is repentance, are repentance and faith like the car from Uncle Mortimer, or is it like that blood that's infused into your body? I believe biblically that repentance and faith are gifts from God that you receive sometimes when you're not even asking for them. He overcomes your resistance. Can you think back to the moment when you repented and believed in Jesus? Maybe you were rejecting Him. Maybe you went to church kicking and screaming. Maybe I've heard some of you tell stories about white knuckles on the pews like, I don't want to go. And God so overcame your resistance that you couldn't help but repent and believe. Listen to me, if that's not what He does, then none of us will be saved. God births in us a new heart so that we can repent and believe. This is glorious good news. God can guarantee the results of our salvation because he overcomes all our resistance by his sovereign grace. Let me ask a final question this morning. Where do we go from here? What do we do with this doctrine? The idea that God's grace overcomes our resistance. How do we respond to that? Let me suggest a couple of different ways to respond. The first is is very simple. In here and you're not a follower of Jesus, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Look at John 6:37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let me promise you something on the authority of the Word of God this morning, dear friend. If you come to Jesus right now And genuinely repent and believe, he will not say no to you. He promises he won't. Right now, in your seat, in your heart, you can turn from whatever it is you're trusting in, and you can trust in Jesus. You can do that. I wonder if there's some of you in this room, you've been resisting this Jesus for a long time. But right now, right here, you sense God's Spirit overcoming that resistance. That is glorious good news. Would you come to Him today? Look on Him, believe in Him, and be saved today. That's the invitation for anyone that will come. He will never, ever cast you out. Repent and believe if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, there's great comfort in John six thirty-seven. If you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, He will never cast you out. He does not say, I'll never cast out as long as they don't fill in the blank. I'll never cast them out Unless, no. If you have turned and trusted in Jesus, he will never cast you out. Be encouraged, Christian. You did not earn this, it is a gift you have received. Second application. Second way to respond to this glorious doctrine, similar to last week, simply just to praise God. Uh, The girls and I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series together, and we just finished Prince Caspian, and in that book, uh, Lucy returns to the magical world of Narnia for the second time, and when she first sees Aslan, the, the great Lion King, she's surprised At how much bigger he looks. And so she talks to him about it. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. She says, not because you are. And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Christian, every year you grow you will see that God is bigger than you imagined. Perhaps for decades, you've been thinking that you just figured it out. And today, in the past few weeks, you see in God's Word, you see a plan that's far bigger in scope than you could ever have imagined, that God the Father would plan this, that the Son would purchase this, and that the Spirit would give me the ability to repent and believe, and you say, wow, God is well-pleased when you say, wow. He wants you to see how big and glorious and majestic He is. Third application, keep proclaiming the good news. Keep telling people about Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I sat near some folks who were struggling with a wayward child And one of the dear saints around the table said, remember, they can't come unless God draws them. So encouraged in that moment. So encouraged to hear God's people encouraging each other that our our hope for our lost children, our hope for your unbelieving husband or wife, Your hope for your sister or brother that you're going to see this Christmas that doesn't know Jesus, your hope for those grandchildren, it is not in you. It's not in your ability to get it all right. It's not in your ability to have the perfect gospel presentation. It's not in your ability to answer all their objections. Your hope is in the Father. And so you go to the Father and you say, please, draw him, draw her. Would you please, Lord, draw them to yourself? And then you tell them. And you pray that God will use the little morsels that you share to awaken them an appetite for Himself. Keep telling people about Jesus. One final application is that we... Since we've been loved like this, we should love like this. Think about how you've been loved, Christian. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to love you. 2,000 years ago, God sent His Son to pay a price to adopt you. The Spirit pursues you in love even overcoming your resistance to Him. Would you love other people that way? To the Christians in this room, let me just, a word to the Christians. If somebody resists you and you're trying to love them, you're trying to pursue them, you're trying to build a relationship, disciple, encourage them, what's your first instinct? I'll tell you mine, I'm done with you. I mean, I'll, I'll pour into somebody else. What if the Spirit did that with you, Christian? Aren't you glad that you have a God that overcomes your resistance to Him? If you have such a God who has loved you like that, ought you not by the Spirit's power strive to love others like that, to overcome even their resistance so that you might love Them well. The new Christmas movie, Spirited, treats viewers to a fresh spin on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. What if Scrooge resisted the three spirits? What if Scrooge didn't want to change? What if Scrooge simply said, No thanks, good afternoon? That's every one of us, isn't it? We want to resist God. We don't want to change. But God doesn't quit on His people. He pursues, He pursues, He pursues until all our resistances are overcome. And in the end, we're not dragged kicking and screaming to faith in Jesus. When God is done with us, We want him. And that is glorious good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we.